Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer, and I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. I'm Ross Oldenkamp, another evangelist. And we are focusing our attention today as we continue our study of the life of Christ and the harmony of the Gospels. We'll see Jesus being charged with being in league with the devil, casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils, And we find that also we're going to be talking about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and a demand of a sign. But the Pharisees charging Jesus being in league with the devil was found in Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 11. For our purposes, we'll be focusing upon Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verses 22 through 30. 22 through 30. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and unable to speak, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man, who was unable to speak, talked and could see. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he has become divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out the demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first ties up the strong man? and then he will plunder his house. The one who is not with me is against me, and the one who does not gather with me scatters. An individual who was possessed of a demon was brought to Jesus. The account indicates, I believe, that the blindness and dumbness of the man was a direct result of the possession, that the demon was responsible for it. Just as Jesus had done in the case of the dumb man, possessed by a demon in Matthew chapter 9, he cleansed this individual, casting the demon out, enabling him to both see and hear. I think the interesting thing is the reaction of the people who witnessed this cleansing. It was one of amazement, leading some to the conclusion that this was the promised son of David, the Messiah. But the Pharisees were not of the disposition to accept this conclusion. They were gradually forming their own opinion of Jesus, and that he could be the son of David was not part of it. Still, it was obvious to all present that this individual had indeed been freed from the demon that had possessed him, and that he was now able to both see and speak. Some sort of explanation was necessary. A wondrous thing had been done, and no one could deny it. Yes, no one could deny it. In fact, the best that the Pharisees could do would be to uh, supply some sort of devious uh, explanation to it because they knew that the result, if this is the Holy Spirit uh, power casting out the demons, 
as Jesus says, uh, well, that would mean that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And they just simply could not accept that as the truth. And uh, so Jesus gives three illustrations to to come to the final conclusion that uh, it makes no sense what they were saying, that this was by the power of Beelzebub. Those illustrations are that of a kingdom, that of a city, and that of a house. In each of those instances, any time they uh, are found to be divided against itself, uh, there is no long-term standing for those for that state. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by verse 29 in particular, um, of the entering of the strong man's house, carrying off his property, unless he first ties up the strong man. And the illustration there of, of Jesus going in, and he's the one that ties up the, the strong man, and he's the um, the the greater the greater one is here greater than um, Beelzebul and Satan um, and we see the, the the greatness of of Jesus there um, in in that illustration he is the one who has come and is not only just um, showing his authority here but his his greatness over what they know as well you know the explanation of the Pharisees was that Jesus did indeed cast out demons but He did so only by the power of the prince of demons himself, Beelzebub. And their explanation was more than a simple assertion that Jesus did what he did by the means or the power of Beelzebub. I believe it was a declaration that he could have done it by no other means. God was kind of dismissed from the picture altogether. Now in the time of Christ, Beelzebub was simply the name used for the chief of demons and was identified with Satan himself. Jesus showed that such an action on Satan's part, which would effectively be casting out himself, was ridiculous and self-destructive. Yeah, so one, the argument is that just doesn't make any sense. And if it were the case, then I guess we should be rejoicing because uh, his kingdom is (laughs) short-lived. That would be a great cause of rejoicing. So it doesn't pass the sensibility test, but he also exposes them for their hypocrisy, I believe. In, uh, in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Uh, it seems to me that uh, there were others with the, with the ability given by God to be able to cast out demons. Uh, if, that's the, if, if that's the truth, You know, we know that at other times disciples found people casting out demons and they, you know, they said they didn't follow after us. So we, uh, we rejected them, you know, we rebuked them. Uh, So here are people who are casting out demons, but the Pharisees have nothing to say about that. But only now that it's Jesus and that he is making the claims that he is. I think that's an interesting application for us when, when we find how easy it is for us to ignore uh, things that our family is doing. Uh, and we, we turn a blind eye to the things that family does, but then when it's somebody else, uh, all of a sudden now we have a problem with it. I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus neither confirmed nor denied that the disciples of the Pharisees were casting out demons. He mentions it by way of argument. The obvious implication is that they would have to reply that their disciples cast out demons by God's help. And if that were so, 
then they would be convicted of dishonesty and just simply not being sincere in what they were saying. How could they attribute divine assistance to their disciples and then turn around and deny it to Jesus? All had witnessed what Jesus had done. To be consistent, the Pharisees would have to admit divine assistance to Jesus and that in Jesus the kingdom of God had come. Yeah, I just I also wanted to point out in verse 25 the and knowing their thoughts um, aspect of it. So in verse 24 it talks about the Pharisees were saying this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Um, certainly would definitely appear that they must have been saying it to themselves um, or at least um, maybe in a small circle. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And so you can imagine their reaction to um, Jesus knowing exactly what they were saying is... Uh, I think even more so, um, kind of a an awakening moment for them. At, le- at least uh, they obviously didn't see the full picture, but at least a a bit of um, something they hadn't quite realized yet. I think this text may give some explanation as to why God is permitting demons to possess people, which probably is a question that all of us have had. Um, it's it's an unusual moment in in history. And yet it does, it does uh, declare uh, that God has power over Satan. You know, it, it sends the message that God's kingdom has come upon you. And secondly, that God is stronger than Satan. That's what verse 29 uh, brings to mind, is that uh, one can, uh, how, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Uh, this whole uncomfortable demon, uh, these incidents are meant to show us that God has power over Satan and he will win. Okay, we'll go ahead now because tied right in directly with what is being talked about is that the Pharisees move ahead and they charge Jesus with blasphemy. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at verses 31 through 37 of Matthew chapter 12. And that will point this out. This is what it says. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruits. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things out of the abundance of the heart The mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The parallel passage, by the way, found over in Mark, this account, says, uh, beginning with verse 23, So he called them to himself and said to them, How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. We'll have occasion to go to this passage uh, a little bit later on as well. But Luke added something in Luke's account in Luke chapter 12 and verse 10. Luke added, And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemes against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. Fellows, I don't know how many different interpretations or ideas that you've come across in your study of this, but of the study that I did, the three most popular interpretations concerning the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, at least those that are being advanced by most of the commentators today, are these. Number one, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was committed by these Pharisees when they said that Jesus was in league with the devil and was casting out demons by the power of the devil. Those who hold this view usually maintain that it is not a sin which is committed today, but was simply this particular charge made against Jesus during his ministry. Secondly, it is the sin of rejecting the invitation of Jesus to become his follower. It is committed by everyone who refuses to believe and obey when they hear the gospel. And the third popular interpretation is that it is the sin of continuous malicious attacks upon Christ and the Holy Spirit. It is not a single word or insult, but a continuous assault by word or deed. I'll tell you the truth, I don't accept any of these views entirely, but I believe it's a combination of the second and third views that would be most correct. In Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, we find Jesus in the synagogue of the city of Nazareth, and the passage says, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to preach, the God, or preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. This passage, as well as the statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you, indicate to us a very important function of the Holy Spirit as far as the Lord was concerned, and I think this is key. Jesus performed the miracles that he performed through the Holy Spirit. I believe the gospel accounts are clear that Jesus was anointed of the Spirit and that the Spirit was a vital agent in his work. This needs to be borne in mind as we seek to understand the nature of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, from the accounts themselves.
Yeah, you know, a lot of people spoke against Jesus. I mean, they were blaspheming Jesus uh, because he is, he is God when they called him a sinner. You know, saying, this man who is a sinner, uh, they were blaspheming Jesus. That, that wasn't unforgivable. Uh, they, many were forgiven. Um, so what about blaspheming the Spirit? So John 14, 11 uh, shows that that there was there were multiple witnesses by which Jesus appealed to people. It wasn't just his witness. Uh, in John fourteen eleven, it says, "Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves." So there may be some uh, some individual who rejects Jesus. Uh, but then there's this follow-up testimony. If you're not going to take my word for it, then just look at this. And I think that blaspheming the Spirit uh, not only rejects Jesus, but it also rejects the source. The source of the power, the source of the inspiration, the source of the teaching. And uh, I think a good case study of this is uh, the, the Apostle Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. And uh, Paul called himself, his previous self, a blasphemer. I was a blasphemer and an insolent man. Uh, he says he compelled others to blaspheme. But you know that he, he found forgiveness because, like you said, Greg, he didn't, he didn't stay in that condition blaspheming, uh, blaspheming God. Jesus had worked a notable miracle. I mean, that was obvious to all, and he had done it in the presence of many witnesses. The subject of the miracle, he was both blind and dumb, afflictions that were evidently brought about by the fact that he was a demonic possessed by a demon. But Jesus cleansed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. The crowd of witnesses appears to have been convinced. They cried out, Is this not the son of David? Is not this miracle worker the Messiah? Didn't the prophecies portray him as a worker of miracles? Who could dispute that the Spirit of God was with Jesus? Who could dispute that he was the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ of God? Well, I'll tell you who could dispute it. The Pharisees did dispute it. And they did so against the clearest of evidence. Because of their pride, their envy, they refused to accept what they had seen. Truly, there are none so blind as those who refuse to see. Now, to defend their opinion of the Lord and to retain some degree of credibility in the eyes of the people, they invented the ludicrous charge that Jesus was casting out demons through the prince of the devils, Thus they blasphemously attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to diabolical agency. The Holy Spirit was blasphemously identified with the very prince of the demons. Well, what had they done? They had rejected the clearest evidence for the work of the Spirit through Jesus. And I, I don't think that the statement that it will not be forgiven is a commentary on simply how bad this sin was. This doesn't have to do with degrees of awfulness. I think this is a lot like a phrase that is used in Hebrews 10, 
that describes a, a Christian who goes on and sins willfully. The phrase is made in 1026, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, uh, there's, 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 no, there's no message of hope beyond what they've already received. Like these people who are hearing this teaching and they, they revile and blaspheme the very source from which it comes. Well, there's no, there's no good news. There's no gospel for uh, anyone that's going to come along and save them after that. Uh, they're going to have to come around on that point or else they have no hope of forgiveness. It is my conviction then, in view of what we've said thus far, that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit appears to me to be the final rejection of the clearest evidence produced by the Spirit through Jesus, and that was the miracles that he worked. Obviously, such an individual will reject Jesus as well, that there is no forgiveness of such a sin while the sinner remains involved in it, is clear. But Jesus did say, and whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Well, what would that be? I think it's a resistance to the testimony of Jesus without the demonstration of the miracles. But to speak against the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, is to resist that testimony when it's so confirmed by the miracles. You know, Jesus he spoke about the significance of his miracles in several different places. In John chapter 10, for instance, verses 25 and then verses 37 and 38. Verse 25 said, Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Verses 37 and 38 say, If I do not the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe in the works, that, they, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So to kind of summarize what's been said thus far, it appears to me that the sin denounced as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the rejection of the evidence of the Messiahship of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is to reject the miracles he performed. Question is often asked, can it be committed today? It is my conviction that yes, it can, because we have the same evidence today that they had in the first century, and it is presented to us for the very same reason. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 tells us what that reason is. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The ludicrous charge of the Pharisees really showed the condition of their heart. A man who was truly good would not speak such wicked things. They, by their speech, had shown the abundance of their hearts, and it was wickedness. To the Pharisees and to all, Jesus gave a warning. Every word that we speak, we will be held accountable for. Idle words spoken thoughtlessly without giving true consideration to their meaning or their effect can condemn us.
Yeah, was, the, our words are so important. It reminded me of James 3 where the illustration and really majority of the chapter is talking about how dangerous the tongue is. Um, James 3, 4 used the illustration of how ships are so big and large and yet they're directed by a very small rudder. Um, and then the illustration of how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire um, in verse 5. And it's important to understand how dangerous our tongues can be and what we're saying to, to each other, um, to God. It, it's very important and the careless words that we speak um, have have weight. And um, it's also as verse 35 or 34 in, Ma- in Matthew 12 ends with, for the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Um, you're going to know people by their fruits and know know them by by their actions. And so it's um, certainly something to see that you know, even for yourself, the way you're speaking, can you can also judge what's really going on inside of you as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by the thought of blasphemy of the Spirit today. Do you suppose that it is blasphemy of the Spirit to, to discount the Scriptures simply by saying, oh, these are just the words of men, or, or you know... No one can understand the Bible, you know, even though the scriptures say God is not the author of confusion. By saying, you know, everyone has a different interpretation, no one can understand it, so there's just not really much value to it. Is that an example, you think, of I, I think that it is, because the scriptures themselves were given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And included in that inspired revelation is the truth of the great miracles and works that Jesus performed. And yes, I believe that to reject them is to, in fact, be guilty of the blasphemy of the, against the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's going to have to do it for this particular episode. We appreciate so much each of you who have been listening. We hope that you are benefiting from this study of the life of Christ. If you are, then tell your friends that they might listen as well. And until next time... Thanks for listening.